that I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who are married should live as if they were not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if they were not, it was not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman, a virgin, is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a life, a life that in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably toward the virgin he is engaged to, and if she is getting beyond the usual age of marrying, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion but his control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, and he who does not marry her does better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, and if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So a couple of weeks ago, you might remember Lisa, she introduced me and probably several of us to a concept that I had never heard of before. It's called the Dunning-Kruger Effect. Now, it was brand new to me, and since it was, I had to go in to do some research. I had never heard of it, so I looked at it. And so basically, the idea is that people with low ability, they, take, they overestimate their ability to do certain tasks. So in other words, they think they know a whole lot more about a topic than they actually do. Now, there's a really good example of this Dunning-Kruger effect out there. It has to do with this man. And he decided that he actually knew a lot more about science than what he actually knew and understood. You see, in 1995, this man by the name of MacArthur Wheeler, he began doing scientific research into the area of invisibility. You see, Wheeler, he understood some things about invisibility, such as lemon juice. The property, there are some chemical properties in, in lemon juice that enables people to use it as invisible ink, right? So basically the way it works is you get some lemon juice and you take something and you dip it in the lemon juice and then you write it out on a piece of paper. And then when it dries, it's completely invisible to everyone. Then if the person you give this letter to understands that it's a secret message, all they have to do is take that piece of paper and hold it above a heat source, maybe like a, a candle flame or, or a light bulb. And as you do that, the heat source will then turn the lemon juice brown, and all of a sudden the secret message will be able to be read. And so Wheeler, he understood that, so he, he decided that he could do the same thing to himself. He, he took some lemon juice and he slathered it all over his face and allowed it to dry. And then he avoided all the heat sources around him and he got a Polaroid camera. This was back before we had smartphones, right? He took this Polaroid camera and he held it out. He took his selfie 
with the camera. And then he took the, the, the photograph as it came out the end of the camera and he looked at it. And he didn't see his own face. You see, the, there was something wrong with the film. It was just this blurry spot there. And so since he couldn't see his face clearly, he had scientific proof that he was now invisible. And so on the morning of April 19th, 1995, he set out to utilize his newly found invisibility to rob not just one bank, but two banks in Pittsburgh. Now, he honestly did believe that his face was rendered invisible by this lemon juice. His belief was based on his misunderstanding of how lemon juice can be used as invisible ink. Now, obviously, he did not get away with this. The surveillance cameras at both of these banks, they took pictures of him. And then the police, they took those pictures, they posted it on the nightly news. And within one hour, he was arrested for the bank robberies. Now, the most interesting thing about this story, it's not so much the theory that he had. I mean, theories are theories, right? It's actually the fact that because of this Dunning-Kruger effect, when Wheeler was interrogated by the police officers on this bank robbery, he was adamant that there was no possible way they captured him using camera evidence because his face was still invisible. Now, in today's world, we have all sorts of information, don't we? They are literally at our fingertips. And a lot of us believe we know more about topics than we actually do. We have this tendency of listening to others who act as though they know more about topics than we do. And something I've discovered recently is that in our contemporary culture, we will actively go out and believe anything that lines up with what we already believe. If someone online says something and we like what they say, then they are 100% right. And, and the obvious, opposite is also true. If, if somebody out there says something that we don't agree with, then they're automatically wrong. You see, the real, reality is that all people have opinions. But some opinions should have more weight than other people's opinions, shouldn't they? So a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, y'all might remember, I busted my head open. Y'all remember that? And so I had an opinion about this. My opinion was, I was fine. I just needed a couple of butterfly bandages put on this thing, and everything was going to be just okay. And then my wife showed up, and she had another opinion. Her opinion was, I needed to go to the ER and get stitches. And after I finally agreed to do that, we went to the ER, and seven stitches later, she was proved to be exactly right. Her opinion was correct. Her medically... Uh, her medically uh, educated opinion was right. She's a nurse. And my untrained medical opinion was completely wrong. And so we're going to dig into this morning's scripture. And as we do so, we, we need to keep this Dunning-Kruger effect in mind. But we also need to understand something else. Now, before we get into that, let's listen to what Paul says. He, he says this, now concerning virgins. I have no command of the Lord, but... I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So I love the fact that, that Paul, he's not ashamed here. He unashamedly admits that on this particular topic, he has no clear answer. This is a gray area. Now as a public school teacher and as a pastor, I learned that it's far better whenever I say, I really don't know the answer to that. It's a better thing for me. It's a better thing for you. It, it's 
whenever I'm reading scripture, I also need to make sure I let people know according to how I'm understanding this Bible scripture, this passage, this is how I understand this thing. And then we have a conversation. But here's the thing, Paul, he, he's not suffering from the Dunning-Kruger effect because he is an apostle called by Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. He has a deeper understanding of who God is and what God is calling him to do and to be in the community life and how much transformation is possible for people through the power of the Holy Spirit because of Jesus. But it doesn't mean he knows everything. It doesn't mean that he has all of the answers, and so he also has some opinions. Now, because of his authority, because he is all of the things that I've just mentioned, we need to listen even to his opinions even if they're not this direct revelation from God. So that's where we are this morning. We have this morning an issue at the church in Corinth. And that issue is surrounding unmarried people, both people who are now widowed and people who have never been married. Now, as we know from Paul's writings, he is also unmarried. And, and so he has this recommendation. He says that anyone who is currently unmarried, they should not get married. But you see, his reasoning for that recommendation, it, it really has not a lot to do with theology. It actually has to do with other things. So let's look at what he says here. He says, I think that in view of the impending crisis, it is well for you to remain as you are. And then in verse 29, he continues, I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. From now on, let those who have wives be as though they had none. Let those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they're not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they have no possessions. Those who deal with the world as though they have no dealings. For the present form of this world is passing away. So here's the thing. These passages here in 1 Corinthians show us that it's clear that Paul's opinion is not based on theology as much as it is on eschatology. You see, one of the most prevalent beliefs of the first century world, of the first century Christians, they held this belief in common was in regards to the return of Jesus to the earth. That's what eschatology is all about. It's about the end times. It's about death and judgment and the final destiny of the soul. So at this particular point in time, when Paul is sitting down writing 1 Corinthians, almost every Christian on the planet believed that Jesus would return in their lifetime. They thought that Jesus was going to come back to this earth within 30 years of his ascension. And so that's why Paul is carrying this particular opinion as he's writing this letter. That's why he says that unmarried people should not get married. In his opinion, from what he's understanding here, there is no reason that any person should get married. Jesus is going to be showing up any day, folks. Then there won't be time for you to build your life and to have children and do all the things that you are planning to do. There's no point in all of this. Now, he does admit if you're not able to control yourself in the meantime, go ahead and go get married. But he says if you choose not to get married, then you are choosing to live a celibate lifestyle, which in his opinion is the better option. Now, here we are in the 21st century. And we're looking back at this particular passage. And so for the past over 2,000 years, Jesus has still not returned. And so we read this passage and we're like, eh, well, it's not really all that important to us. We see that Paul and these other first century Christians, they were wrong. And so there's really nothing we can learn from it. But we shouldn't do that, church. We shouldn't dismiss what Paul is saying here too quickly because we can still learn something from it, even though he was wrong in his understanding of Jesus' return. 
You see, in a lot of ways, modern Christians, we, we've kind of swung the other direction from those first century Christians. If I were to sit here and poll people in this room, my guess is that most of us would, if we were being honest, we would admit that we really do not believe that Jesus is going to return in our own lifetime. It's going to be at some point in the future, probably after we're dead. Well, that too poses a problem for us. Because you see, in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus, he tells us this story. He tells us a parable. And we probably ought to pay attention to what Jesus says in that parable. Let's listen to it. The kingdom of heaven will be like this. Ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise, they took flasks of oil with their lamps. Well, the bridegroom was delayed, and all of them became drowsy, and they slept. But at midnight there was a shout, Look, here comes the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all of those bridesmaids, they got up and they trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wives, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wives replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly, I tell you, I do not know you. So here we have this parable. And in this parable, Jesus, he's telling all of his disciples, both those in the first century and us today, that his return is probably going to take longer than most of us expected it will. The first century Christians did not listen to this parable. They didn't pay attention to the story. They, they were like those ten bridesmaids. They expected him to be home right away, sometime before midnight. And that's why Paul gave them his opinion as he did. All of the torches were lit and the flames were brilliantly lighting the pathway as they were waiting for his return. But here's the thing. Those of us in the 21st century, we have gotten tired, haven't we? We're also like these bridesmaids in the stories. Because you see, all ten bridesmaids fell asleep. And it seems as though modern day disciples, we have probably also at least gotten really sleepy at this point. We're tired, we're falling asleep as we're waiting for the return. And so here's the lesson, church, listen carefully. Sleeping is not The problem here, being unprepared is the problem. Because in this particular story, there is no way to tell which of these bridesmaids are prepared and which ones are unprepared at the beginning of the story, is there? The preparedness only becomes apparent when the bridegroom actually returns. It's only when those torches are relit that we know who had taken all the necessary precautions and had brought all the stuff with them in order to welcome the bridegroom home. And you see, that really is the direction Paul is trying to push the church in Corinth and even us to understand. You see, being married or being unmarried, it's not really an issue at all. The issue is how well prepared are we to live out the calling that Jesus has placed upon us as his disciples? How prepared are we today for the return of Jesus? So even though Paul was wrong about how soon Jesus is going to return, he's exactly right in his understanding of what happens after people do get married. You see, people who are married, they do have split loyalties, don't they? 
you no longer can just focus on your own spiritual growth whenever you get married. You no longer can just pour all of your time and energy into those things that you want to do or into the calling that you have. Marriage is a big deal, and it's an important deal. It takes up a lot of time and energy in our lives, doesn't it? And being married, it, it brings with it all sorts of concerns and anxieties. It brings worldly tribulations that being single doesn't carry with it. And so in the local church, we, we shouldn't ever be pressuring people. We've done that as church historically. Whether people have never been married or if they're widowed, we should never pressure them to make them feel like marriage is what they should be doing. You see, people who are single, they're, they're not lacking anything, are they, church? And the reality is that, that people are able to do things when they're single that we can't do when we're married. They just have the time and energy to do it. And so instead of seeing marriage as this ideal state, the, the center on the target, perhaps we should take Paul's broader view here. And we should begin to see that singleness just might be the higher calling for people of faith. So this morning, Paul, he, he's calling us to that, that expansive view of spirituality. Whether we realize it or not, church, the world is passing away. And at some point in the future, I don't know when, Jesus is going to return. And when he comes back, he's going to usher in the fullness of his kingdom. But until that happens, our job is to be prepared. Our job is to, to lean into the life where we have been called. It's our job to lift one another up, not to pressure other people to be something that they're not. Because you see, church, our worth as people, it, it doesn't stem from whether we're married or whether we're single. And our worth, it doesn't stem from whether we have children or even how many children we have. And our worth does not stem from what our occupation is. Our worth stems from the fact that you and I, every single one of us, we are created in God's holy image. And as people of faith, living out our faith means being prepared for the return of the bridegroom. So regardless of what state we find ourselves in, our attention, our undivided attention to the Lord, that's what matters. That way when Jesus does return, we can awaken from our midnight slumber. We can go out and we can light our torches and we have our oil ready. And we get the opportunity to, to enter in with him into the great banquet. You and I, we will be welcomed into that wedding feast, and we will hear those words that so many of us just long to hear from the mouth of Jesus. The words that he says, well done. Well done, my good and faithful slave. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, may the peace and grace of Jesus be with you today. Amen.